This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, April 28th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. There is breaking news overnight as we've learned more about the gunman who opened fire in a synagogue in Southern California. One victim is dead. Three are wounded. We'll have the latest. This looks like a hate crime. Hard to believe. Hard to believe. Former Vice President Joe Biden makes it official. We are in the battle for the soul of this nation. And the name calling has already begun for the president. Can you imagine Sleepy Joe, <laughs> Crazy Bernie? Coming up this week in Washington, a tale of two committees. As Attorney General William Barr prepares to testify before the House and Senate Judiciary Committees. President Trump can't seem to stop talking about the Russia investigation. I never told Don McGahn to fire Mueller. If I wanted to fire Mueller, I would have done it myself. Senate Judiciary Chairman Lindsey Graham says he's done with Mueller. But that's not the case in the House, where Democrats are in power and the party is split on the call for impeachment proceedings to begin. We'll talk with Graham and House Judiciary Democrat Cedric Richmond. With all the focus on the 21 Democrats running for president, we'll look at the Trump re-election strategy with campaign manager Brad Parscale. Plus, an interview with Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif. And we'll have analysis on all the news of the week Coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin this morning with another attack at a house of worship, this time in Poway, California, outside of San Diego. CBS News correspondent Jonathan Bigliotti reports from Poway. Jonathan, what can you tell us? Good morning, Margaret. And what we know this morning, police identifying this suspect as John Ernest, a 19-year-old nursing student with no prior criminal history. In what is believed to be his manifesto, Ernest says he was inspired by other recent hate crimes. Witnesses say the gunman stormed Congregation Chabad screaming anti-Semitic slurs before opening fire with a semi-automatic rifle. He took the life of 60-year-old Lori Gilbert Kay and seriously injured the temple's rabbi, Israel Goldstein, who attempted to speak with the shooter before he fled the scene. Ernest later called 911 to turn himself in, and while searching the home he shares with his parents, police believe they discovered a clue to his intentions. We're aware of his manifesto, which we're in the process of uh, reviewing to determine its validity and authenticity. The document's author calls himself a white supremacist and says he took inspiration from both last year's Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, as well as last month's New Zealand mosque mass shootings. 
Ernest has been booked on one count murder and three counts attempted murder. He may also be charged with a hate crime. The FBI is here on scene assisting with this investigation. Margaret. Jonathan Vigliotti. Thank you. We turn now to the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, South Carolina's senior senator, Lindsey Graham. Senator, good to have you here in studio. Thank you. Uh, we just heard about this tragic shooting. It was an AR-15 style semi-automatic weapon. Hate crimes seem to be on the rise right. in this country. What do we need to do to combat this, prevent it? Well, I think uh, somebody interdicted the shooter, thank God, and it could have been worse. But in, I think in California, you can't buy a gun until you're 21. So let's find out how this guy got the gun, what his motives were. And uh, I'm a big supporter of protective orders, allowing local law enforcement to go to a judge. If there's ample evidence somebody's becoming a danger to themselves or others, about 15 states have such laws. I'm trying to get a national grant program to incentivize states to pass laws, to allow local law enforcement to go to judges, to take guns out of hands of people that are showing really disturbing signs or dangerous signs. And I think in Parkland, that would have made a big difference here. I don't know. Well, we'll continue to follow the details as we learn more about what happened there. Um, but I want to talk about what you are preparing for this week. Right. Attorney General Barr will be answering questions for the first time really in detail about the Mueller report. I know you said you're done with it. Mm -hmm, pretty much. But what is it that you're going to try to focus in on with this hearing? Well, he gave a four-page summary. Does the report support his summary? Does the report actually indicate there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians? I think the idea that this president obstructed justice is absurd. He turned over a million documents to the special counsel. Almost everybody around him testified. I can't think of one thing that President Trump did to stop Mueller from doing his job. He never claimed executive privilege. From my point of view, uh, I've heard all I need to really know. Now I want to look at and find out how all this happened. But on that point of attempting to obstruct justice mm -hmm. or not, the president seems to want to continue to litigate this because he came out this week and <laughs> said uh, and denied that he had ever fought or told anyone to fire Don yeah, McGahn, right. the White House counsel. Right. But that directly contradicts sworn testimony that yeah, was yeah. in the Mueller report where Don McGahn said he almost quit. Yeah. He was so pressured to fire the special counsel. Well, who do you believe? I, I think it's just all theater. It doesn't matter. I don't care what he said to Don McGahn. It's what he did. And <clears throat> the president never obstructed. It doesn't matter to you that oh, the president God, no. is I changing mean, if, a version uh, of events or perhaps gonna, some would say lying. If, if you're going to look at every president who pops off at a staff... And, you know, ask him to do something that's maybe crazy, then we won't have any presidents. But in terms of the firing, this was Don McGahn, the White House counsel, being pressured to fire the special counsel. But he didn't. I don't care. But, I don't care what they talked about. He didn't do anything. The point is the president did not impede Mueller from doing his investigation. And it doesn't trouble you closed. that the president is changing his version of events. I don't I don't care. What happened between him and Don McGahn? Here's what I care about. Did Mueller, was a Mueller allowed to do his job? And the answer is yes. Name one thing that they did to stop Mueller from doing his job. And if you can't, then there's no obstruction. Will you call him again to testify? Uh, not me? No, no, I'm, I'm done. What about the special counsel? I'm not going to relitigate it. I don't know how clear I can be, Margaret. It's over for me. He didn't collude with the Russians. Obstruction of justice in this situation is absurd. I fought hard as hell to make sure Mueller could do his job, introduce legislation 
to make sure he couldn't be fired, uh, it's over. But in terms of this report, it was not just the obstruction of justice that you seem to be saying you're over. All the details in here about Russia and what they tried to do, what they did succeed at doing in terms of accessing computer systems, isn't that worth uh, a conversation? I mean, Senator Marco Rubio came out and said this week, he went as far as to say that they had the ability, they were in a position to alter Florida voter rolls back in 2016. Uh, I think that's that's the point. There's two things I'm going to look at. Uh, What did they do and are they trying to do it again and how do we stop them? I think that's something we all need to focus on. And uh, how did this start? How Is co- the president focused on that enough? On that? Yeah, he's got a good doing team it around again, him. Yeah, no, he's got a good team around him to make sure we harden our infrastructure. But what Marco said was a bit stunning. I've never heard that before. So what I want to do is make sure that Intel and Judiciary and Homeland Security, that the three committees are working together to harden the infrastructure against Russia or anybody else interfering in 2020, and Russia is still up to it. So the takeaway for me is that they were very involved in the 2016 election. They're coming at us again. I'd like to stop them. And one way to stop them is to make them pay a price. You're talking about this with a level of seriousness that we did not hear uh, from Jared Kushner, uh, senior advisor to the president. I want to play for you some sound um, when he was speaking this week about uh, the Russia probe when he said, it was actually more damaging to have the Mueller investigation. Listen to what he said. Quite frankly, the whole thing's just a big distraction for the country. And you look at, you know, what Russia did, you know, buying some Facebook ads to try to sow dissent and do it, and it's a terrible thing. But uh, I think the investigations and, and all of the, the speculation that's happened for the last two years has had a much uh, harsher impact on our democracy than a couple of Facebook ads. Now, if you look at the magnitude of what they did and what they accomplished, I think the ensuing investigations have been way more harmful to our well, country. I mean, is he minimizing the threat to national security? Well, I like Jared a lot, but he's leaving out a big detail. The Russians hacked into John Podesta's emails, the campaign manager for the Democratic candidate for president. The Russians hacked into Hillary Clinton's emails, the candidate for the Democratic Party. Can you imagine what we would be saying if the Russians or the Iranians hacked into the presidential team? of the Republican Party. So no, this is a big deal. It's not just a few Facebook ads. They were very successful in pitting one American against the other during the 2016 campaign by manipulating social media. And they actually got into the campaign email system of the Democratic Party. An attack on one party should be an attack on all. The Russians are up to it again. And here's what I tell President Trump. Everything we've done with the Russians is not working. We need more sanctions, not less. More sanctions now. Now, before 2020, because clearly they don't have the message. I also want to ask you about some of the remarks you have made in the past, um, because we know as Democrats start talking about the details of the Mueller report, combing through it and already calling for impeachment proceedings Mm -hmm. to begin against the president of the United States. Here's what you said um, back in January of 1999 when you were helping to lead the impeachment of President Clinton. The point I'm trying to make is you don't even have to be convicted of a crime to lose your job in this constitutional republic. If this body determines that your conduct as a public official is clearly out of bounds in your role, thank God you did that. Because impeachment is not about punishment. Impeachment is about cleansing the office. Impeachment 
is about restoring honor and integrity to the office. Do you agree? I was a lot younger. (laughs) (laughs) But it sounds like some of what you're characterizing here, saying everything in the Mueller report, it may not be great, but it doesn't reach the level of being able to prosecute. Well, uh, That's cr- different from what you described there, which was to say behavior of a president, sure the does. cleansing of an office well, it, is it, important. It's got to be a high crime and misdemeanor, not defined by uh, the prosecution team, but by a political body called the House of Representatives approved by the Senate. So there was an article of impeachment against President Clinton for lying under oath about having sex with Monica Lewinsky. I voted against that because I believe a lot of people would lie to protect their family if they were blindsided about an affair. So I didn't want that to become a high crime or misdemeanor. What President Clinton did was interfere in a lawsuit against him by Paula Jones and others, hide the evidence, encourage people to lie. So to me, he took the legal system and turned it upside down. But it doesn't have to technically be a crime. What President Trump did here was completely cooperate in an investigation, a million documents, let everybody that the special counsel wanted to talk to uh, be interviewed. Don McGahn was interviewed for 30 hours. I believe the president did nothing wrong. Whether you like him or not, I'll leave that up to you. But this is but a, even the pressuring Don McGahn to see, fire that, the special okay, counsel. He may gonna, not have done if, it. If you're going to let that be the standard of impeachment, that you have an interaction between a White House counsel and a president that, that you find uncomfortable, then we'll have nobody serve. So here's the deal for me. You actually have to do something. Bill Clinton lost his law, law license for five years because he did something. But to my Democratic friends... If you agree with the 1999 statement I made, you think this office needs to be cleansed, impeach him. It's up to you. If you think Donald Trump deserves to be impeached, then impeach him. I don't. Quickly, before you go, I want to ask you about your old friend, Joe Biden, former vice president, throwing his hat into the ring. President Trump seeming to suggest he's too old. What do you think? Well, yeah, that's uh, up to the voters to decide. I think uh, President Trump is very vibrant, and I know Joe, Joe Biden. If you travel with Joe Biden, you won't think he's too old. Here's the problem for Joe. Does he fit into the Democratic Party of uh, 2020? I don't know. He's a good man. I like him a lot. I disagree with him on, on policy. I hope he doesn't apologize for the life he's led because he's led a good life. But if he starts apologizing for all the policy positions and decisions he's made throughout his life, that will be disappointing. I don't know how he fits in this party, but I do know this. He's a good man and he would be a strong candidate. Senator Graham, thank you. We turn now to the Louisiana Democrat, Cedric Richmond. He sits on the House Judiciary Committee and supports former Vice President Joe Biden. He joins us this morning from New Orleans. Good morning to you. Before we get uh, to those issues, I want to quickly ask you about the shooting in California. These hate crimes are on a rise in this country. Uh, This shooter self-identified as a white supremacist. What should be done to combat this? Look, first of all, my prayers and thoughts goes out uh, to the family. And it's just a reminder that uh, our words as leaders in this country Uh, have dire consequences. So whether we're talking about the Steve Scalise shooting, whether we're talking about Gabby Giffords, whether we're talking about Parkland, where we're talking about uh, Tree of Life, uh, it's our responsibility to deal with it. We've been calling on uh, not only the Judiciary Committee in past years, but Homeland Security Committee also 
to deal with uh, the rise in hate crimes, especially under this president. We just held a hearing in uh, judiciary where we talked about this. And I think that uh, the rhetoric plays a part in it. The access to high uh, capacity assault weapons plays a part in it. And uh, I think we just have to do better as a country. Uh, you were one of the first to come out and to endorse uh, the former Vice President Joe Biden for president. I'm curious as to why you think that at this moment in time, he is the right Democrat to unify the party and to represent it at a time when many are calling for generational change or just for the candidate to represent the country in a more diverse fashion. Why do you think he can do that? Well, one, I look at his entire body of work. Two, if you look at the uh, video that he released and you can see the passion, you can see the reason why he's running. And that's because we live in a country that we don't recognize. Uh, we live in a country where people are working harder and they owe more. Uh, we live in a country where people don't have uh, the access to achieve their wildest dreams and for their children to uh, reach economic dignity and their parents to live out their lives with uh, economic dignity, respect, and independence. So uh, we're fighting for the soul of the country. And one thing I learned in uh, politics very early, you can't govern if you can't win. And I believe Joe Biden, one, is the best person uh, to represent the Democratic Party, but I think he's the best person uh, to win. Uh, Lindsey Graham was uh, on this program, as you heard, and he called it absolutely absurd to accuse the president of obstruction of justice. He says this is a closed matter. You possibly will get to ask questions of Attorney General Barr this week. Is it a closed matter for you? Absolutely not. Uh, this president has attempted to collude, if that's the word he wants to use. He's attempted to obstruct justice at the least. At the worst, he's obstructed justice, and I believe that it's the... Gen Judiciary Committee's responsibility uh, to dig into it. Now, uh, Senator Graham points to uh, President Clinton, who uh, sat down, put his hand on a Bible, took an oath, and testified under oath. This president did not do that. And it's clear why he didn't do that. His counsel has said over and over again, uh, they just don't believe in his ability to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And we see that during his presidency. So you can't compare this to other uh, reports or other hearings or other impeachment process. We have not heard from this president under oath. So the best person we can hear from is Attorney General Barr to find out why, one, his summary or Cliff Notes version was so different from the facts, and two, why won't he just release the unredacted report? Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has said, though, that to move forward with impeachment proceedings, it needs to be bipartisan. You haven't seen a single Republican come out and say that they would support an impeachment. So is this a closed matter for you? Do you personally think impeachment should be considered? I think it should. I think it's the best way to get uh, all of the facts out. Uh, I also believe that at some point we have to hear uh, from this president, whether he's lying to us or not, we need to hear from him under oath. But look, my sole fo focus right now uh, is to make sure that he's not the president uh, next term. And what we do uh, this term, we need to, one, learn from the facts, what Russia did, make sure that uh, the president has not obstructed justice. But more importantly, we need to make sure that he does not win reelection. And that's part of the reason why I'm here is because I'm supporting uh, Vice President Joe Biden to beat him. And to be clear, you support impeachment now. Look, it's uh, Chairman Nadler's decision how far we go with impeachment uh, I would just tell you I'm comfortable going either way. Uh, I am a lawyer by trade. I am very concerned about this president's 
uh, fitness for office. I'm very concerned about uh, the crimes that I believe that uh, mm-hmm. he has committed or that the report certainly suggests that he has committed. So I'm okay. fine going either way. Uh, but my goal is for him not to be president next term. All right. Thank you very much, Congressman. We'll be back in a moment. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. Most of the focus on campaign 2020 so far has been on the very crowded field of Democrats running for the right to face President Trump next fall. We thought we'd take a look at the campaign operation on the Republican side, which kicked off the very day he was inaugurated. Brad Parscale is the president's campaign manager and joins us. Welcome to Face the Nation. Thanks for having me. It's my first time here. You've got kind of an unusual resume, uh, you know, a background in the digital space, in marketing. You had no political experience up until 2016. Other than being an American. (laughs) But then you became a campaign manager this time around. So is this really about marketing? Is that what political campaigns are about these days? Running a re-election is a lot about marketing, advertising, understanding data and analytics, building out, you know, foundational structures to understand the president's message and how to deliver it. Um, There's considerable things that, that come from just understanding how to build out the infrastructure to be able to communicate with millions and tens of millions of people and, and how to effectively spend five, six hundred million dollars. Five or six hundred. Minimum, minimum. Minimum. I heard you say at one point up to a billion. It could. But that's I'm talking about all the infrastructures like the Republican Party is going to spend money. The outside groups will spend money. We've already uh, raised over one hundred and fifty million, I believe, at this point, And uh, uh, we still got a long uh, 19 months to go. Raised from small dollars. Ninety five percent of all of our money comes in through small dollars. One nice thing about small dollar donations is it lets people connect and, and, and know they're buying into into the movement. Our prospecting numbers now are, are numbers people have never seen before. You know, I, I hope to have 40, 50 million people direct contacts by Election Day. Um, what does tw- that mean, direct contacts? So um, every campaign tries to go out and ge- generate data. How, how do I connect to you by cell phone? How do I connect to you by email? So that I don't have to run an advertisement and pay CBS to get to you. I can just contact you. That's email addresses. That's cell phone phones. numbers. We'll have right now we're already passing 30 some million and we're, we're on course to go to 40, 50 million, which is almost every voter that will vote for us for presidency. I can just call them or email. Them. So uh, explain how that fits into the digital strategy. That means I'm, I'm sitting in rural Iowa. You want me to vote for President Trump. Are you targeting me specifically? Yeah. So what I do, you're I, changing your message based so on where someone think is. about it. I can go across America and say, hey, here's a voter in Minnesota that if I know if I get, you know, 26,000 of these perfect people to show up that didn't show up last time, I can flip that state. So what I do, go find them now. We're spending millions of dollars a month, um, light years ahead of any can- campaign in history to build the foundation of who we need to market to, what we need to understand, what we need to say to them and how to exactly deliver to them. Where? Where are you most focused? 
What about uh, well, there's some key states. Obviously, we have uh, to go back and win Michigan again, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin. Um, we plan on um, also being in Minnesota very soon. Uh, I think New Mexico is in play in 2020. Uh, I think New Hampshire. Uh, I, I think we continue to grow the map. I think Nevada, um, you know, even Colorado. And so those are those are states we did not win in in 2016. That I think are open for 2020. But the idea in the past is you brought up TV ads is yep. the traditional way or has been or rallies where you have someone going out and having face to face or door to door contact. Like how much of the ground game is still part of the strategy oh, for you now? Huge amount. So we're still building one of the largest ground games in history. So. I'll give you some numbers. In 2016, we had 700,000 about volunteers. We plan on 1.6 million volunteers for 2020. And that's uh, people connected, door to door? Connected, well, all different kinds of things. They'll be connected through technology on your phone, through apps and other development and different things. Some people might just hold block parties. Some people might be engaging on social media. Some people might be knocking door to door. In every single metric, we're looking at being bigger, um, uh, better and better than we were in 2016. And we'll, But this time... We're not out there trying to prove we can do something. The president has proved he has done it. And now we just have to deliver what he's done. We'll have more of our interview with Brad Parscale in a moment. Stay with us. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore. Because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We continue our conversation with President Trump's campaign manager, Brad Parscale. Around the time of the shutdown, the 35-day shutdown we went through, uh, there were fundraising ads going out to supporters uh, saying, you know, send a brick to Nancy. Yeah, um, I love that idea. Nancy being Speaker of the House, of course. Yeah. Uh, and, and this was a way to raise funds. Yep. How successful was it? A oh, that one was like great. That? that was, you know, a campaign like that could raise three, four million dollars, um, you know. From these small dollar donors. Oh, from donors. small dollar donors. You know, they want to How be- does that work? Well, they want to be part of an activity. They they want to be involved, and uh, this is a way that they got to to buy a foam brick and and get it labeled with their name and sent to Nancy Pelosi's office and say, you know, build the wall. You know, it's a it's a way for them somewhere in the middle of Nebraska who's so you know far from the system but wants to be involved. This is a way for them to put twenty five, forty five dollars and say, look, I want to make a difference. We do that with T-shirts. We do that with hats. We've sold. Uh, we're closing on selling our one millionth red MAGA hat. Um, you know, uh, you know, those are 45 bucks a piece, you know, do the math there really quick. It's $45 million. So the, those kind of things are, this president has, has changed the game in way merchandise, um, rallies, um, the entire experience of being part of the political, um, uh, political movement. He's changed it. But beyond the branding, the value to you campaign wise is that you retain Small. that information. I retain, I retain information and we get to keep, we get to keep the net that proceeds. But I'm curious, how does that affect the messaging? I mean, if these are people who feel 
uh, motivated enough or want to be activist enough yeah. to give on the particular issue. Is the yeah. president changing his messaging to match that? Or no. is his uh, you know, agenda driven by the White House? No. It's so the, you're kind of twisting that a little bit. The, well, explain it. So what happens is the president sets his policies. These are what they are. Now, those policies are, have a range of things. Uh, one person at you know, 1300 Elm Street could really care about immigration. But at 1305 Elm Street, they could really care about tariff policy. Now, that doesn't mean we're changing what the president's message is to them. We're showing them the part of the message that's right for them. And how much can you actually know about someone based on what text they've sent? I mean, do you know how they voted in the past or what motivated them last time? So the Republican Party built this thing called the Data Trust, one of the largest databases in the world to understand what people are and can now provide over to me a universe of people attached in the social media and or possibly by text message or different ways and say, hey, these are the people that are saying in the criteria you're speaking about. How many rallies are we going to see President Trump out there doing? Oh, a lot. How involved is he in some of these decisions on messaging? So I always explain it like this. He is the um, captain of the ship. He is, he, is the, he is the engineer of the Trump train. He is the campaign manager, the communications manager, the finance director, um, coalitions director, all things. My job is to be the Trump conductor. My job is to keep the cars together, keep them running on time, get them to the place they need to go. You're a disruptor. The president also likes championing that. But you're talking now to people like Karl Rove, a oh, Bush yeah. advisor. Yeah. So it's, since, since you've come to Washington, so to speak, has well, that changed you? I, I, yes, it's changed me. I have a lot less um, um, faith in the system. You really understand how swampy it is until you get here. Um, I think as a disruptor, though, um, yes, in the history of, you know, I think that those who don't understand history are due to repeat it in a positive or negative way. And for me not to understand what every predecessor of mine did and what they understood and how they thought, um, regardless of the technology at the time, would be doing a disservice to my boss. So, um, so do you coordinate with Carl Rose? It's not a coordination. It's a learning process. Hey, what did you do? Tell me the stories. What were the worst moments you had? What were the best moments? If you did it over again, what do you think you would do? What, how'd you handle this situation. You know, education, um, there's not a lot of people running around that have won elections Hmm. on the Republican side or the Democrat side. I mean, the last guy to win a re-election is Karl Rove and Melman in 2004 for Republican. And before that, it was Reagan that won a re-election. So it's not like there's a club you can go to and there's mm-hmm. just all these re-electing winning campaign managers. So um, they're telling you how to build out a ground not, game. No, not talk, talk. No, now you're saying that. I'm asking them for historical context. You know, they don't know what I know and some things I don't know what they know. Um, but they've had to live through it. And, and, and Carl's given me some great things afterwards said, you know what? If I did it again. I would have done this or I wouldn't have done that. And hindsight is a great weapon to have when you're up in front of it again. So you like the establishment, but sometimes. I don't like the establishment. I like the diversity of knowledge. Um, and I'm going to use all of it I can to help get President Trump reelected again in 2020. Brad Parscale, thank you for joining thank us. You. We now turn to our political panel for some analysis. Jamal Simmons is a Democratic strategist and host on Hill TV. Lonnie Chen is a policy expert and fellow at the Hoover Institution. Amy Walter is the national editor of the Cook Political Report. And Mark Landler covers the White House and foreign policy for The New York Times. Congrats to you uh, on going to London, I understand. You're going to be the new London bureau chief. Margaret, thank you. 
Invite me back. I'll talk all about Prince Harry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget about Meghan Markle. Yes, yes I do. <laughs> She's the star in that equation. We, we do hope to have you back at this table. Um, I want to start us off um, this launch this week. It happened. Joe Biden made it official. Uh, we've been talking about it for so, so long. Uh, but he chose an interesting way to say what inspired him. I want to play for you some of his ad. And that's when we heard the words of the President of the United States that stunned the world and shocked the conscience of this nation. He said there were, quote, some very fine people on both sides. Very fine people on both sides? But those words, the President of the United States assigned a moral equivalence between those spreading hate and those with the courage to stand against it. And in that moment, I knew the threat to this nation was unlike any I had ever seen in my lifetime. I was talking about people that went because they felt very strongly about the monument to Robert E. Lee, a great general. Whether you like it or not, he was one of the great generals. Amy, <laughs> where, do we go with where do we go with this? Why relitigate Charlottesville and in ter- on the president's response there? But also, is this the right way to launch a campaign? Right. Is this where the Democratic Party should be focused right now? It's to use clear this painful moment in a political yeah, way. I mean, it's pretty clear that it, from that video, you've got a couple of things that we understand about Joe Biden. One. Unlike other people in this race, Joe Biden is only running because Donald Trump is president. I think regardless of it were President Ted Cruz uh, in office, Bernie Sanders would be running. Elizabeth Warren would probably be running. Those folks are running much more as revolutionary candidates who believe that the system itself is broken and needs to be fixed. What Biden is saying is the system isn't broken. It's the person in charge of the system who's broken. So I'm going to bring back some normalcy. I'm going to bring us back to what we thought were agreed on American values, right? that you don't um, say of people who show up at a rally of, with not white nationalists that that's okay. But you're right. Then we're getting back into the fight where the president really loves to play, which is really the debate over who has the values of America, who is it, the, where are the cultural touchstones that relate more to, to voters. And that's where Democrats are... They've tried this. Hillary Clinton tried it. It was not as successful. The the challenge for the president, I'm I'm sorry, the the challenge for the vice president is to be able to make that transition to the next piece of this, which is who's going to keep America moving forward, Mm -hmm. especially on economics? Who has the answer for the middle class? That's what apparently he's going to be doing in these next couple of days as he goes to Pennsylvania and, and lays that out. What do you think, as a Democratic strategist, uh, using this as a motivating principle? Oh, I think it's the right thing. I think a lot of Democrats agree that what the president is doing is giving, President Trump is doing, is giving aid and comfort, cultural, cultural aid and comfort to white nationalists. And that is something that a lot of Democrats and a lot of Americans who are not Democrats um, are very uncomfortable with. So the framing of that is right. The vice president got off to a strong start. He raised a lot of money. He put a good team in place. Um, I think a lot of Democrats feel more comfortable about that. The question for the vice president, for Vice President Biden is, 
a lot of Democrats aren't just looking for a change in management. They're looking for a change in direction. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we're going to go back, he said at one point that he wanted to go uh, tell America's allies that America's coming back, the, old, the America they knew was coming back. You know, for a lot of Democrats, they don't think the America we knew was that great of a place. There was still all the economic strife. Um, and a lot of that is what produced Donald Trump. So the question is not about taking America back to something, but where are we going forward with America? And I think if Vice President Biden can capture that voice, he could be a strong Democratic candidate. I think you called it revelation, or revolution versus restoration. Um, Lonnie, what do you think about the president here? I, I, Amy suggests that in some ways Biden is playing to the president's strength or at least a tool he likes to use. I, I think he is. I think the president really understands his base, I think, in a way that few presidents have understood the base electorate that supports them. Successful presidential campaigns are when the person meets the moment. And the question for Joe Biden, is he the right person for the moment we're in? I think that's the question everyone's asking. He's a decidedly 20th century candidate in a 21st century campaign. And I think the big question is going to be, you know, this launch, I think, was splashy for the message. But is he going to stay on that message? Is he really going to come to this middle class economics question? Hard thing to do when you've got a 3.2 percent growth rate, low unemployment, and people feel that that the, the strains of economic anxiety, some of them are still there. But by and large, the economy has done well. So I think the vice president, Vice President Biden, is going to have to figure out, does he stay on this track of sort of continuing to be provocative? Or does he come back to these bread and butter economic issues? And I think that's going to be a much more difficult challenge for him than he thinks. Except I do have to say, there are a lot of Americans who are, while they may have jobs, they have jobs making less money than they made before. I'm from Michigan, where auto workers used to make $30, $40 an hour, and now they start at $18, $22 an hour. That is real money for people. And so I think there, we do have full employment, but it's full employment at what wage? Mm-hmm. Mark, when you heard the president even just at this rally yesterday, which he attended rather than go to the correspondence dinner here in Washington, he continues to return to the, the familiar messages of immigration, but also the economy. I mean, the economy seems to be the thing that the Republicans are most confident about and that he wants to run on here. So is there a way for Democrats to puncture that? Well, I think, Lon, he got it that that's going to be the quandary for Democrats. The the most recent economic number that came out late last week was really strong. And I think it put to bed the idea that this is an economy on the cusp of a slowdown or perhaps even a recession. I think six months ago, a lot of Democrats thought that that's the election they were going to be running into. And that once you puncture the myth that Trump has a winning economy, then all his other flaws become far more apparent. Now it looks like he may, in fact, continue to run with a strong economy. And I think that makes the Democratic uh, challenge a great deal harder. And I think that's why it was interesting last night at the rally. He could have gone a number of different ways at previous rallies that coincided with the White House Correspondents uh, Association dinner. He's been very anti-press. He's he's really given a very red meat speech. This, by Trump standards, was actually less red meat than we've seen and more focused on the economic record. He really went through it very methodically, very systematically, and I think that's because they recognize they have a fairly strong case to make. I mean, not to bring up bad memories Lonnie, from 2012, sorry, many, from the Romney campaign. <laughs> but I do remember that was the, the case that the Romney campaign made throughout 2012 was don't focus on the president himself and his uh, what he's doing as president. Focus on the economy, the economy, the economy. And it was true when you looked at President Obama's record in terms of his job approval rating on the economy, much lower than his overall job approval rating. Right. So, of course, focus on the thing that he's weakest mm-hmm. on. But 
what we found was that, and this happened with um, George W. Bush as well, the overall approval rating of the president, how people feel about the president, was more important in terms of its sort of predictive value than how they felt the, the person was doing handling the economy. This president is completely different. His overall approval rating, how people feel about him as president, has always consistently been eight, nine points lower than his handling of the economy. And so, you know, voters, they... We're humans. We go into the voting booth with a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of conflicting things going on in our minds. The economy in and of itself is one piece, but it is not the only thing that voters use to evaluate whether they want to see this person spending another four years in the Oval Office. Mark, one of the things that we haven't heard really any of the Democratic candidates do is explain their vision for America's role in the world. Many of them have, though, signed on to, oh, we'll reinstate the Iran nuclear deal, at least on that one specific issue. Um, How important is it that we start to hear about this on the campaign trail? Well, I think we can stipulate that in primaries, uh, except in years where the country is truly at war, in the, during the Iraq War, for example, foreign policy is generally not a driving issue. It can be a driving issue in a general election, but again, not every time, once in a while. I think the interesting thing that the Trump administration does, though, is it, it actually puts Democrats in a little bit of an awkward position on foreign policy because some of the issues that President Trump has tended and positions he's tended to take actually resonate with Democrats. Mm. Staying out of foreign conflicts, Mm -hmm. endless foreign wars. Uh, The trade policy, again, is quite resonant with some significant portion of the Democratic base. So I think if you're a Democratic candidate and you're squaring off against President Trump, the old arguments Democrats used to make about Republicans don't really apply. And I think they need to find a language that sort of matches up well with America first, with free and fair and reciprocal trade agreements. This is language that the Democratic foreign policy elite recoils at. But voters may actually appeal, may actually appeal to voters and not just only Republican voters. Here's what President Trump said is Joe Biden's vulnerability. I'm so young. I can't believe it. I'm the youngest person. I am a young, vibrant man. I look at Joe. I don't know about him. I don't know. 72-year-old president, 76-year-old vice president, Joe Biden, 77-year-old Bernie Sanders. This is not generational change. (laughs) This is not generational change. And it may not be the country is really interested in generational change, but again, they're interested in something that's about a change in direction. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about this uh, this foreign policy question that Mark was just mentioning, but it's built on a house of tissue paper because... Donald Trump's fundamental problem here is that people just don't really know when to trust him. This is another example. He just said, I'm young. It's Mm -hmm. very, he could have just left it at, I'm vibrant, and he might have been okay. (laughs) But but the problem is they lie even when the truth is a pretty decent thing. Yeah, we we, we do have to leave it there. I'm so sorry, Lenny, (laughs) but we'd want to have you back uh, for further conversation. In a moment, we'll return with our interview with Javad Zarif, Iran's foreign minister. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the sleep number store. Because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a sleep number bed. Sleep number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. 
The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. Tensions have been high between the U.S. and Iran since President Trump quit the Iran nuclear deal. In the past weeks, they've climbed even higher. The U.S. labeled Iran's military a terrorist organization and demanded other countries stop purchasing its oil. We sat down with Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif. We do not want conflict. We resist. But we're not seeking confrontation. We don't believe that President Trump wants confrontation. But we know that there are people who are pushing for one. Military confrontation. I don't think military confrontation will happen. I think people have uh, more prudence than allowing a military confrontation to happen. But I think the U.S. administration is putting uh, things in place for accidents to happen. And there has to be extreme vigilance so that people who are planning this type of accident would not have their way. Who's Interest. Doing that? Uh, my B team. What do you I've mean B team? Ambassador Bolton, one B, Bibi Netanyahu, second B, Bin Zayed, third B, Bin Salman, fourth B. These people want confrontation. And I believe it is important for the prudent people, for the grown ups, to prevent confrontation. When you and I sat down and spoke just a year or more ago, you said that your president refused to meet with President Trump here in New York. Do you regret that now? Do no, you we think- don't. We cannot meet somebody who is not respectful, who has violated his country's international obligations, who has withdrawn from agreements. We have 150 pages of carefully negotiated agreement a multilateral agreement endorsed by the Security Council, where the United States is a permanent member. So if, if the United States does not respect that, what would it respect? The Trump administration, as we mentioned, is rumping up pressure. This designation of the IRGC as a foreign terrorist organization is going to squeeze Iran's already troubled economy even further. What is the impact going to be if this happens and, as the U.S. says, May 2nd's the deadline for the rest of the world to stop buying Iran's oil? Well, it will show to the Iranian people that the United States is not worthy of being a negotiating partner. That's what it will prove. It depends on whether Europe, as well as other members of the JCPOA, want to leave their destiny in the hands of an administration that does not respect its words. We will survive. We have survived tougher days. The Secretary of State has said, look, if you just look at the facts on the ground, 603 American service people killed 
by Iran, he attributes this, and the IEDs have maimed American service people in the battlefields. He looks at that, he looks at what's happening in Syria and Yemen and says, look, we're just recognizing facts. That's his explanation for this designation. Well, he's wrong. He's wrong because they have aligned themselves with the wrong people in our region, and they cannot accept that they're suffering defeat because they simply chose the wrong side. You were talking about what's happening in Syria. Everywhere. They have spent far more money than anybody else. $7 trillion according to President Trump. When I spoke with President Trump in February, he said that he was going to keep U.S. troops in Iraq to watch Iran. Well, and he immediately heard from the Iraqis that that is not how they see the presence of U.S. forces. Did you hear that? You see, I went to Iraq. I stayed in Iraq for five days. I went to five cities. I went among the people of Iraq. And I was welcomed by them. I went to public places. President Trump flew to Iraq to a military base and left from the same military base within hours in the dark of night. Our president went to Iraq, stayed there for three days, went to public meetings in three Iraqi cities. Now, you tell me who's welcome in Iraq and who's not. Did you hear that as a threat from the president? I think the Iraqis heard that as a threat from the president. The Secretary of State, when he was testifying before Congress, uh, specifically said that there is absolutely no doubt that there are ties between Iran and al-Qaeda, full stop. It brought up this question of whether the U.S. is going to try to use some kind of authorization for military force to strike Iran on the basis of past support for that kind of terrorism. Well, uh, last I remember, 15 of the 21 9-11 terrorists were Saudi citizens, non-Iranian. You're not concerned that the U.S. is looking. I'm, I'm concerned about ulterior, for the possibility of how to I'm, strike I'm, I'm concerned about hidden agendas that some people are following. Uh, I know that President Trump had uh, ran on a campaign promise of not engaging in any more foolish wars. Uh, I know that some other people have different agendas. Our full interview with Foreign Minister Zarif is available on our website at facethenation.com. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Senator Lindsey Graham, Congressman Cedric Richmond, Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif, and Trump campaign manager Brad Parscale. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow... If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas... Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. 
Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I'm just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.